Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I'm John Abernathy. I'm the care pastor here at Wildwood. Um, We've been here almost 21 years with my wife and my family, and we love being here and love you guys, and it's a privilege to speak to you today. Um, I hope you had a good Christmas. We are in the last sermon on a sermon series that Mark has been preaching called Joy to the World, and there have been uh, six of these. There have been six of these messages uh, that Mark has led us through that talk through... uh, the events, the life, the people of the Christmas story. And hope you get, hopefully you guys were able to be here for those and even for number five that was on Christmas Eve. Today we're going to be looking at the sixth part of the series, which is the Lord really came, that Jesus really was a human being who lived and died as a man. But before we get to that, has anyone been to the movies recently? Anyone going with COVID movies, staying at home, HBO Max? I don't know what we're doing. Um, To the movies, there's one that has been the third highest grossing movie in opening weekend history. You know what it was? Yeah. There it is. Spider-Man, right? Uh, No Way Home. For those of you that are counting the 27th Marvel movie. Uh, I put up some characters here because while we were, while I was studying and thinking about Jesus being completely human in our text that he was also completely God, I started thinking about the characters that Stan Lee made for the Avengers, right? He created some that were human, but he gave them superpowers or he gave them super suits, and he created some characters that were not human but had some superpowers, but none of the characters were both completely human and truly big G God or little G God-like, right? I mean, if you take Spider-Man, what's his real name in the movie? Peter Parker, right? Peter Parker gets bit by a spider. He's a real guy, gets bit by a spider, uh, given certain powers. He gets spidey sense, he gets different vision, he gets certain things, but he still has to make actually several versions of a costume. Uh, He still has to make his webs. Uh, He can still get hurt or killed. He's not really eternal, right? He's in this, and you can see Stephen Strange there, the good doctor who has great hands. He's a human with hands. He's a surgeon. His hands get injured, And all of a sudden, he becomes Doctor Strange, and he gets the eye, and he gets the cloak, and um, he can do some magical things, but he still can't do everything on his own. He can't stop the snap, and he still can die, right? There's some other ones on here. Uh, Tony Stark, right? Definitely a man. Egotistical, smart, but a man. Uh, Not a god. He has to build a suit and has to have a computer that he talks to in the suit. He even has to make this magnetic device to keep him alive, might not live forever. I don't really want to spoil anything, but um, definitely not a god. What about Hawkeye? Some of you have been watching the series with Clint Barton, right? Definitely a man. Can shoot some arrows, can do some martial arts. Not supernatural. Gets injured all the time. Even wears a lot of butterfly bandages, right? Um, not a god. What about the big guy right here? Thanos. Can I get a boo for that? Yeah not even drawn up as a human, was supposedly a son of some people called the Eternals, um, sort of a hybrid guy, very strong, but he's still got to have the gauntlet. He's still got to have the Infinity Stones, and of course, he can still die as well. 
right? I put Groot on here or baby Groot, you know, he's really just a tree. So, but I included him because I like him because he made that great sacrifice, but he can grow some branches and things, but he's not even really a God or, or a man, like he's just a tree, but Hulk, right? I'm a child of the seventies. I grew up 1978, Star Wars, the first movie, and Incredible Hulk on Friday nights. So I had a great life in the 70s. Um, the Hulk, right? He was Bruce Banner, right? Gamma radiation gets Bruce. Then he can still be Bruce if he's calm, but if he gets mad, he turns into Lou Ferrigno, the Hulk, um, right? Um, and in game, they, they even tried to combine the two. It was a little bit strange. He stayed sort of both. But again, he's strong and he can take some blows, but he couldn't even like escape the game master on his own. Like he can't control the weather or the universe. He's not, he's not a God, right? What about the last one? What about, uh, what about Thor, right? Thor claims to be the God of thunder, right? He's Odin's son. He has a hammer, lightning bolts, right? The whole, all these powerful things, but he can't even defeat Hela, right? He can't even beat up his own sister, right? And can't keep his eye, can't stop the snap, can't defeat Thanos without help, right? He's not a god. He's not a god, right? Obviously, something resonates in us to watch stories and movies and read books about people that acquire superpowers and then can use them to help others. But even when these people act together, uh, they still have flaws. They really even aren't that powerful. And you may be upset that I remind you of this, but they really aren't even real. Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin it. And there's just actors and actresses and CGI that p- portray them. It's, it's all made up, and those are just human actors. Sorry. But even before computers and film, right, people have always made up little g-gods. If you look through world history, right, the ancient uh, Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, right, we had Zeus, we had Diana, we had Poseidon, we have Hades, all these ones you had to learn in high school, Right? We, had, we had Greek gods, we had Roman gods, Egyptian gods. They worshiped Ra, the sun god. They had Osiris. Right? They had Isis. They had we, Bible, Baal of the Canaanites. Right? Made up things. They even made up animals, made up statues. Some people even worshiped the earth. Right? So mythical things that didn't even exist they worshiped. People have also worshiped or followed actual people uh, who weren't gods. Right? The pharaohs. Right? Uh, Chinese emperors, if you study Chinese history, Roman emperors, they called themselves gods and accepted worship, right? Alexander the Great, Buddha, Inca gods, Mayan leaders, Dalai Lamas, none of these people were gods, right? None of them had the power over their own death, right? They dug up, found King Tut, he's still in the tomb, right? They have to pull him out no power over death. They couldn't raise people from the dead. They couldn't save people from their sin. They couldn't conquer death itself. They couldn't be resurrected and then appeared over 500 people. Uh, none of that, right? So there are, there are movie characters, book characters that aren't real. There are made-up gods and creatures that aren't gods. There are real humans that were worshiped but weren't God, right? But there's none except Jesus Christ who has been both fully man and fully God, right? And we see at Christmas, at the incarnation, that God the Son, Jesus, becomes human, right? It is clear and it's vital and it's necessary that we know and we believe that truth, that he became man, okay? Why? Why does it matter? 
Well, first of all, it matters for the obvious reason that we need a Savior, right? Romans 3 says that we've sinned and fallen short of God, that we are deserving of death, and there has to be uh, somebody die in our place, and that somebody has to be a perfect sacrifice, but it's because we have a sin problem. So it matters that a real man would come so that he could die after living a, a holy, perfect life, right? It also matters because Mark 10 says that we need, and Jesus was, a ransom, a sacrifice, and a propitiation, right? So that he was the payment, but he was also the satisfaction, that big P word, propitiation, he was the satisfaction of God's justice and God's holiness. And in order to be that satisfaction, to be that ransom, to be that sacrifice, he had to be a man. He had to be a human, right? Um, another section of Scripture, Hebrews 2. I'm going to read from Hebrews 2. If you want to open that up, um, Hebrews 2, and it's, it's verse, starting in verse 14. You're like, man, Mark's gone, and he's not even through the introduction yet. We're going to be here forever. Now, this is great. This has something to do with it. It's why did, why did he have to be this? Okay, we'll get there. Hebrews 2. Okay, Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Okay? So it says people are flesh and blood, so Jesus also became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There's one thing. He became human so that he could destroy the power of death through Satan right? Look at this. You may not have seen this. This speaks to me personally. And deliver, because he became a man and died, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Are you enslaved to the fear of death? Enslaved? One reason he became a human and died was to free us from that fear, because we know that through his death and his resurrection, we can have eternal life. We know what the world holds for us after this, and it should release us from fear, from slavery to that fear. goes on to say in 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, it's not angels that he becomes human for. He becomes human for humans as a human, right? In every respect, he was completely a human being, okay? It says, in order that or so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, right? And we're going to get back to him being a merciful high priest at the end, but it says again, so that he could be that sacrifice, he had to be a man. He had to be a human. And he was. And he was. Turn over to Luke 2, and this is our passage for today. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Luke 2, 40. And we're going to read this. I'm actually going to start in verse 39. Uh, verse 39 in Luke 2 picks up right after. Simeon and Anna. Okay, so right after Simeon and Anna, in verse 39, it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee 
to their own town of Nazareth. So remember, they presented him at the temple. They did the eight days. They did the 40 days. And after they did that, they went back to their hometown. Somewhere in that verse is also contained their flight to Egypt, just in the timing, not in the physical verse. The the flight to Egypt, uh, the wise men, and all of those things, okay, in verse 39. Because verse 40 says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We believe verse 40 summarizes Jesus' next 10 years of life. So that's when he's about two or when those things happen up to when he's 12. Okay? We're going to pick up when he's 12 here in verse 41. It says this. Here's an event that happens. I'll help you guys with this. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem and every year, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So normally Jewish people who are very devout would go to Jerusalem three times a year. We at least know they would go up for Passover. Sometimes for Passover they would stay the full eight days. Sometimes they would stay two days. It appears Mary and Joseph um, were a very religious family. It says when he's 12, they go up. It was their custom, just like maybe your custom to come to the Christmas Eve service or to come to a special service. They go to Passover. And it says um, when he was 12, which is... That's just before he'd become a son of the covenant, which would be at 13, right? We're not going to have bar mitzvahs for another four or 500 years, but he was about to become uh, a man in their eyes. And it says he's 12. It says they leave and they get in their caravan and they're going back home and Jesus stayed there and the parents didn't know it. (laughs) Okay. It says, but supposing him, verse 44, to be in a group, happens to all of us, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him amongst relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Who's lost their kids before? (laughs) Left the kid somewhere, right? Kids, it's it's not because we don't love you, right? I I come to church separate from Lori a lot of Sundays, so when our kids were small, they're grown now, but when they were small, you know, I would come to church, start doing, you know, pastor things, and then she would bring the family, and then we would go home afterwards, and Usually I would like get caught up in stuff and I'm a guy and I forget things. I can't multitask. I'd leave a kid here, right? The kid would go down in the kitchen. Those of you that have been here a while, the kitchen had that long corded phone. They'd go down in the kitchen and he'd be like, uh, I'm still at the church, dad. We'd be like, did you get him? No, I didn't get him. Okay. Um, find something to eat in the fridge and we'll come get you after lunch. You know, we've left our kids. It happens, right? They leave their kid, and in fairness to them, they probably had a whole caravan of people, and Jesus was hanging out with the other 12-year-olds. I don't know. But it says they didn't find him. They go back, and it says in 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. Right? They find him, and this is not just a small home church. This is the temple. This is the whole complex. They find him there, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Not what I was doing when I was 12, right? It says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So they panicked for three days. They find him questioning the rabbis, teaching the rabbis. And it says the rabbis and everyone else in that temple area were amazed at his answers. It says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, just like a mom, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is not said as a teenager with a smart mouth. It's said matter-of-factly. You shouldn't have had to church for me. search for me. I was in church. I was in my father's house, right? It's his father. My father is God, and I'm in God's house, the church. This is my purpose. He's starting to tell them and tell those around him, this is going to be my purpose, is going to be these things of the temple, these things of religion, questioning the authorities. He said, I would, of course, have been here. It says in the next verse, they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, don't miss this kids, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And then here's that other bookend verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay? That's the only verse we get from the time age he is 12 until he starts his adult ministry. So for some reason, God contained, he wrote and contained everything in those two verses that he wants us to know about that time of Jesus' childhood and youth and growth. What does he tell us? He tells us Jesus increased. He was a man, therefore he increased in wisdom, yet he was God at the same time. Right? How do you understand that? We don't have anything to compare that to, but it says that he grew physically. He was definitely a physical man as well. So as he grew in stature, right? I get some of your Christmas cards, and I'm like, what are you feeding these people? They're growing in stature, right? As only the pastor could make that. What's stature? So he grows. It says the favor of God or the grace of God was upon him. And in verse 52, it says also man's favor. Right? So he has a special place with God. It was upon him, but he was a man. Okay, I want to read this quote to you by MacArthur. I know it's a little bit small up here, but bear with me. It says, Jesus didn't cease being God or divest himself of divine attributes in order to become a man. Rather, he took on a human nature and submitted the use of his divine attributes to the will of the Father. Submitted, right? That's that... Uh, Philippians 2, humility language when he becomes a man. He submits his divine attributes to the will of the Father. Therefore, there are times when his omniscience was on display and other times when it was veiled by his humanity in accordance with the Father's will. Christ was therefore subject to the normal process of human growth intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. That's a lot. That's a lot of truth about trying to understand he is completely God, completely man, and it says that he's growing at the same time, right? Um, I love the terminology in the quote that, he was, uh, that it was veiled at certain times by his humanity, right? Now, I want to go back into the passage where he's at the temple, right? This little bit of a busy slide, a little confusing, but this is something that stood out to me. This is not inspired. This is, this is John's thoughts. But if you look through this section, you see several things that show that he's man and several things that show that he's God, right? It says that the people there were amazed at his teaching, right? Why? Because he looks like a man or he looks like a youth, right? He looks like a human, but the teaching that's coming out of his mouth amazes them because he's, he's God, right? They're saying this doesn't match up right? His parents were concerned. Why? He's a man. He's he's gone. He's not with us. Something could happen to him. He might not be able to find meals. All these things men do when the rest of the family's gone, right? 
Sorry, they were concerned, right? He calls God his father, shows that he's God. God is my father. Parents didn't understand what he was saying because they view him as a 12-year-old, not as God. They view him as a man. He was submissive to his parents, right, which a child or a human being would be. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Um, She did that in the scriptures when she was talking about or learning about that Jesus or her son in the womb was going to be God, right? A lot of things just in one passage that show both of those, right? There are other writings that help us learn that Jesus was a man, right? It's not just contained in this passage, right? Here's three of them. We're going to look at these real briefly. The biblical events of Christmas, which we've been studying for the last five weeks and you're probably really familiar with. Um, Other areas in the gospel, specifically we're going to look at a passage in Mark. And then non-Christian writings who wrote about Jesus actually living as a human being in history, right? So let's start. We're going to flip through some of these really quickly. He was a man. We see this in our Christmas story, right? Gabriel tells Mary she would have a son. She would have a human, right? Mary gets pregnant with Jesus, right? Apparently, Joseph was there taking, he took a picture. There she is. She's pregnant with Jesus, right? What? Elizabeth's son, John, is also a son. He leaps in the womb, but she says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Jesus is in her. She's physically, she's physically pregnant, right? Jesus was then physically born, right? Luke 2, 7. When the shepherds come, they see him doing what? He's in his crib. He's in the manger physically as a human being, right? John summarizes his birth and says, the word became flesh, flesh, and dwelt, tabernacle, dwelt, lived among us, right? He was, he was a man, okay? We'll keep going with this. He was then circumcised, very physical human activity, and he was presented to the Lord as you would a real child or a firstborn son, right? Uh, he was held, physically held. He would hold a baby by Simeon, and Simeon called him child, right? We looked at that when Mark, when Mark preached. Um, a lot of things that show that he's a man throughout the Gospels, right? He had a body, Um, You see that in Matthew and in John and other passages. Obviously, he even said, this is my body uh, when he was doing things like walking, talking, sleeping, praying. He did all these things that a human being would do. He got thirsty. Remember on the cross, he says, I'm thirsty, and they give him some sour wine to drink. He gets hungry. The enemy tempts him. says, hey, you can turn these these stones into bread because you're physically hungry, right? He got tired. He would get weary Right? That's actually why he sat down there in that passage with the, at the well with the Samaritan woman. It said he was really tired. Um, he was a human being. Um, he was seen. He was heard. He was touched. John, 1 John 1, 1 summarizes all those things. But he, he was a human. People, they did that. They saw him. They heard him speak. They, they could, you could feel him. He had a real body. Right? He became sorrowful and troubled. He had human emotion. Okay? That's at the garden in Gethsemane. Right? He says he's troubled. He's sorrowed. Uh, the Scripture describes him as meek and lowly. Mark preached on that, right? He physically died under the hands of the Romans as a human being. And nothing in these accounts would show that he is anything other than a human being. He's doing all the human being things along with all the God things, right? He was buried just like you would bury a human body, okay? There's other places that show that Jesus was a human uh, in in the gospel account, specifically this account in Mark 6. Look at what this says. It says, he began to teach in the synagogue. This is when he, obviously when he's in his ministry and he's older. 
And many were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this a carpenter, the son of Mary, right? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, his real brothers. And are his sisters here with us? You remember, he had a lot of half-siblings after his birth. And they said, wait a minute, he's teaching like God, but he is definitely a human. We don't understand, right? And so there's passages like this. You go, okay, they, they thought he was a man. They, they didn't say, oh, he's so obviously God, so obviously a man, you know, whatever. They don't understand. He is human, right? Um, Non-Christians around that time spoke to Jesus actually living, okay? Definitely, Josephus, you know, probably the most famous Jewish historian, although he does switch over to the side of the Romans after the, the it, it's a whole other story. He switches sides, but he's a Jew, writes the Antiquities of the Jews, right? 20 volumes, Jewish history from the time of Adam all the way through the mid-60s A.D. And when he writes, uh, Josephus writes this. Remember, his father's high priest in Jerusalem. He's as Jewish as they come. He says, uh, he's writing about James, Jesus' brother, and he says, and I quote, he was the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. All right, so even in the Antiquities, we see that Josephus recognized that Jesus actually lived and was called Messiah. Gets even better. So you have a Roman here also. Okay? Um, he writes the annals. Tacitus writes the annals. Um, he lived until about 120. So this is at the end of his life. So he was actually alive. Both of them were. Josephus was born right in the mid-30s, alive when all the followers of Christ were alive also, writing these things where some people, first person, were telling them who, who existed. And he says this. He says, when the fire of 64 happens, right, and it, get, and, and it, it burns, excuse me, that everything burns. He said, Nero creates scapegoats and subjects them to the most refined tortures, those who the people called Christians. Look at this. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Right? So you're a Roman reading Roman history, and it says there was a Jesus called Messiah who had been executed by Pilate. Right? Uh, he has no reason... To, to write these things. He's just writing the, the Roman history, and he says, yeah, Nero blamed them, right? Um, I put up here, you know, you can read some of these things in Evidence That Demands a Verdict or The Case for Christ. If you want to read some of their writings, um, maybe 20 volumes over the next few days, David might do that, but you can go to Project Gutenberg online or ccel.org and see these original documents that speak to Jesus being a human, right? In spite of all the biblical proof and you know, all the extra-biblical proof or the non-Christian proof, people and groups throughout history have struggled to believe and they have denied that Jesus is both God and man, right? They mislead people with these unbiblical theological systems. Um, followers of Christ, leaders, theologians, normal Christians understand the significance of these views, and so uh, they know the damage that's done. And so especially in the first five centuries, we see uh, Christians gathering, coming together in what we'd call councils, and saying we are going to uh, actually put down in writing these biblical statements of faith called creeds. Okay, we're going to say these things uh, so that we get the wording exactly as it would be scripturally. And so believers then learn and recite these creeds, and they have throughout time. Right? Some of you may have even grown up reciting 
um, the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed in church, right? So they're going to come together at a place called Chalcedon, which is in Asia, Asia Minor, part of Turkey, sort of modern-day Istanbul, in 451, and write one of these creeds. The church leaders are. Now, about that time, if you, if you remember your history, Attila the Hun is almost all the way through Europe, all the way down through into Rome, about to take over Rome. And at that time, the Christians thought it important enough, let's get all the leaders of the church, which is a big deal in those areas, to go over to Chalcedon and meet because it's more important that Arius and Astorius and these people are saying things about Christ that aren't true. So they're going to all get up and travel. They go there and they write these words down about the biblical view of Jesus being both man and God. I'm going to read some of this to you. It says this, These are the actual words. I've taken some out so it wouldn't be so long, um, but where I did, I put ellipses. So, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, in all things like unto us, without sin, to be acknowledged in two natures, the distinction of these natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather each nature being preserved and parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So important that we get this right, that he was both man and God for the sacrifice and living as a man in his holy life, but also to be God in the flesh. So they write that. Matheson summarizes the points here. He says, Jesus Christ is one person. He's perfect in divinity. He's perfect in humanity. The two natures of Christ are united without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Right? Piper is going to say this. Jesus took on flesh and blood and clothed his deity with humanity. Don't you love that? It says, he became fully man and remained fully God. The reason he became man was to die. That's the purpose. As God, pure and simple, he couldn't die for sinners, but as man he could. His aim was to die. Therefore, he had to be born human. He was born to die. Good Friday, meaning the cross, is the purpose of Christmas, the incarnation. That's why he came, right? In spite of all this and included in all this is the wonderful fact that uh, we can come to Christ, right? Um, he is fully God. He is fully man. But you remember that verse 18 that says he understands. We can, we can go to Christ. We go to him first for salvation, right? Galatians 4 says that in the perfect time, it says when the fullness of time had come, right? This is the most important event in human history, the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ, God sent forth his son, look at what it says, born of woman, born under the law, he's a human, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem, to buy back, to purchase back because of our sin, those of us that were under the law as human beings, right? We also know this one, very, very familiar passage. Why don't you say this with me while I read it, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
right? He sent his son as a man, but also as God, so that we can have eternal life by placing our faith in his death and his payment on the cross for our sins, and we can experience through his resurrection our eternal life and our adoption as sons, our uh, being forever with him, right? But he also came, and we can go to him uh, because of his role as a high priest and an intercessor, okay? And I want to close with this. This is Hebrews 4. Um, The verse 18 that we looked at um, before in Hebrews 2 says um, something similar. It says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If we stopped right there, this is really, really, really good news, right? If you think of of, uh, the high priest, you know, going in the Holy of Holies, you know, going in things one time a year, we can't go in, we don't have any part with that. The high priest doesn't really know me, I don't know him. There's thousands of people making sacrifices. Uh, They're bringing, going into the holy place, prayers and things like that. But it says we have a different high priest in Jesus, right? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Understand that. God, the creator, Jesus, the creator and the sustainer, Colossians 1 and 2, sympathizes with us, right? He has sympathy with us. He has been tempted in every way. So if you think, I'm struggling with sin, doing sin, thinking sin, I'm struggling with these things, I'm tempted to do that, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way. And he was tempted so that he would be compassionate for us, that he would understand that he would sympathize with us. God became human in that way, but he didn't sin different than us, right? He had to be a perfect sacrifice. So he, he understands that, but he was still the perfect sacrifice. What is our response? Look at this. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in times of need. You can confidently, assuredly go to Jesus with what you're struggling with, with what you're tempted with, with your issues, with your problems. You can go with confidence because of what he did, and it says, draw near, right? At our salvation, we were uh, declared righteous because of what Christ did, the one-time justification. But it says daily, hourly, by the minute, you can draw near. And you're not drawing near to a God or to a son who doesn't understand or you're also, I mean, also, you're not drawing near to someone that's wrathful. Look at what it says, the throne of grace, right? Not the throne of judgment, not the throne of he's so mad at you, right? No, not even the throne of lies, right? It's the throne of grace, right? God's grace. Something we don't deserve when we come to him is grace and mercy, right? When you mess up or when you're tempted to mess up or you want forgiveness or you want help, he's not saying, I hope you got it right or I'm going to smash you when you come near the throne. I'm going to take out the scepter as a king would and hit you with the scepter. I'm going to have you be executed. He says, no, come and receive grace. Come and receive mercy. The son lived as you did and understands what you're going through, died a horrible human death, understands death and dying that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer in his death, he understands. So he says, draw near to him and receive. This is something given. Receive mercy. Receive grace. Things that we don't deserve from a compassionate and loving God. 
Amen? That's a big amen. So today, in summary, if, you know, obviously if you haven't placed your faith in Christ's death on the cross for your sins and received forgiveness, that one-time event that has eternal consequences, that's, that's where you need to be today, and we'd love to talk to you about that. But if you have, if you're sitting there as a follower of Christ, someone who is a changed person living in a, a different kingdom, the kingdom of Christ as an ambassador for him, but you need some help, or you know people that do, or you need some mercy and some compassion, someone to suffer with you, then we draw near. Right? We draw near to the throne of grace. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you took on human flesh, that you were willing to be a child, to be a youth, to struggle, to be tempted, to be beaten, yet to live without sin so you could be our sacrifice, then taking upon God's wrath, taking God's wrath upon you at the cross. Oh, thank you for that, that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and not on us, that we have the ability to accept his payment, his free gift um, at the cross for the payment of our sins. And I just pray that we would all do that or have done that, the most important decision we'll ever make. But Lord, also thank you that we can draw near with confidence to you, that you're merciful you're gracious. You hear our prayer. Lord, what a wonderful thing. We love you and we give this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen.